Hello and welcome to another episode of Big and Juice. Happy to have you along. Hope you enjoyed the first podcast. I'm Kevin. With me, as they will be each episode, are Blake. Morning, Blake. Good morning, Kevin. Radney. Good morning, Kevin. Brad, how you doing? Good. How are you, Kev? Great. So I'm excited to kind of pick up where we left off. And what we're going to try and get to today is history of sports betting in the U.S. through the Wire Act. Right. Once we get to the Wire Act, I think we'll have a hard stop there and then we'll pick up with the Wire Act because that was such a monumental piece of legislation. So to recap last episode, we talked about just the origins of sports betting in general. We learned that you know, hell, the earth and the heavens were divided <laughs> by throwing bones, basically. And then, Rad, I think you were very helpful in helping to establish what constitutes a bet. You want to refresh our uh, audience? Sure. In order for gambling to exist, there's three elements. You have to have consideration. You're wagering something of value. You have to have chance element. So there has to be some element that you don't control of it. The sports is great that way. You're not actually playing it. Someone else is. And you have to have a prize. So you get something of value. Okay. So consideration, chance, and a prize, the three elements necessary for gambling. We'll revisit that throughout the podcast just to make sure we the events we're talking about fall in line with gambling. So one of the last things we talked about in the last episode was how we all learned that a lot of American universities were funded through a lottery system, right? Some of the oldest, the Harvards and the Yales of the world were funded through lotteries and then digging in on that a little bit more. In fact, some of the American Revolutionary War was funded, right? There was a $10 million bond for lotteries. So they used lotteries to build cities, build universities, and to finance the Revolutionary War. In fact, all 13 of the original colonies uh, established lotteries, and it was the Continental Congress that did that $10 million lottery to finance the war. What do you guys think that was like? You didn't go down to 7-Eleven to buy your lottery <laughs> ticket. So you know, how did people in the 1770s participate in a lottery? I'm, I'm not saying that you guys know the answer. I'd just like to talk about it hypothetically for a second. My understanding is that they were going door to door. Yeah. They're literally going ah. door to door. And some of the attempts seemed well received and some didn't. But I mean, if it funded the Revolutionary War, then. So you shake through your rocking chair cushions and yeah. pull out whatever loose change you have, put it in. And then you're Livestock, loose yeah. change. Yeah. You're, and then or you're trusting that yeah. the people who are conducting it. You might not see them for a long time, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I and then how do they deliver the money on a wagon or what happens? <laughs> I'm sure it was check, and we're good for it here. Yeah, go. no, I imagine it was like a high school football game where they're walking around with the right the fifty fifty yeah. thing. I guess so. So interesting to learn that the lotteries are there. Lotteries are not necessarily sports betting, but they are the precursor to it. Then what I think was the first sports betting in the U.S. was going to be horse racing. Yeah, right. And I think it was people started racing horses and. I wonder if people started racing horses and said, hey, let's bet on this, or they said, hey, let's bet on something. I bet my horse is faster than yours. And in my mind, that's got to be the way it started. You know, we talked a lot last week, Radney, about betting on something just for the thrill or the uh, the emotional mm -hmm. exhilaration of winning and being mm -hmm. able to say that you won something. And so it's even better, not only if you won, but you bet someone. And, and that makes a lot of sense because from, from what I know about horse racing, and at least in the early times, it was primarily for the elite. And so it was people with money to blow and, and kind of stick one to their friends and get that thrill rather than a need for the money that kind of leads to the problems and have had led to various legislations or <laughs> uh, bad attitudes towards gambling, for lack of a better term. Sure. So the first horse track was built in Long Island in 1665, Yeah. right? Which... 
is sometime after we settled it, but before we became our own country. Mm-hmm. But I thought that was interesting. Belmont was first run in 1867, the Preakness in 1873, and Churchill Downs in 1875. Yep. Many years ago, I went to the Preakness. That How is a you? party. Yes, I was on the infield of the Preakness. Uh, I was at great time last year. I went to um, what is it, uh, Louisville? Oh, you did? Yeah. The why, why, why is that escaping me? The oh, Kentucky, Kentucky Derby. Kentucky Derby. Oh. Right. Most, well, yeah, so much of the biggest one. Right. I've spent some time at Lone Star Park and, uh, <laughs> and, and made my way to Del Mar once. You know, Lone Star Park's a fun place. It I is don't fun. think people go out there often enough. I saw ostrich races there. Really? So, no concern for the. Well-being of the ostrich. Yeah, exactly. It, I mean, not I, if you're winning money. Yeah, I, I grew up riding horses. I had more concern for the horses. Yeah. So there was horse racing and then boxing in the late 1800s, and people were gambling on that. And you know, you know, baseball started. You know, the late 1800s. I'm sure there was betting around that. We'll get to the 1919. There's scandal. some fun ones we don't hear hear about that much too. I wanted to bring that up, Blake. I think you uncovered something that I had never heard of before. You want to tell us a little bit about pedestrianism? Yes. Yeah, so p- pedestrianism is something that I uncovered in, in trying to find the earliest forms of sports betting. And rumor has it that it has its origins in people betting on who had the fastest messenger. So they'd have a letter to be delivered and, and the messengers wouldn't know about it. But these old guys would, would bet on who had the fastest messenger and eventually this turned into a first privately held sport in new york in like the 1820s and then eventually in like the 1860s they were conducted alongside horse racing at horse tracks as well as places like the madison square garden and people would walk six day races they would walk for six days. They couldn't walk seven days. And it would be who could go the farthest, who could go the longest. They couldn't walk on the seventh you day. You can't walk on the Sabbath, of course. Well, it was <laughs> you, you could not have amusement on, on, mm, on the Sunday. That's right, of course. So they would walk around the track. They would drink champagne for stimulants. and that made them faster. <laughs> apparently it made them faster. But were there rules around, is this like speed walking in the Olympics where one foot has one heel or? Part of your foot has to be on the ground the whole time. What if someone started running? That's the they get kicked out from everything that I saw and, and pictures. I mean, no one was running, and so I, I didn't get too deep into the rules. But maybe I'll try and start a pedestrianism <laughs> ring here and see if I can <laughs> see if I can learn back, yeah. the ins and outs. But there were even sponsorships. There's notes of a guy having a salt sponsor, <laughs> a guy having a newspaper sponsor, the National Police Gazette, which was a big. New York newspaper, apparently. So it's a big deal. So I think people were looking for ways to gamble on anything. I'm, I'm sure dog parks, you know, there's dog racing and again with the horse racing, the boxing. I think this is an interesting opportunity to talk about gambling again, in a sense, because I think here comes right in his moral, his morality. No, no, this isn't morality at all. This, this is, this is the law, which I am also a lawyer uh, for those listening. So it really depends on who is placing the wager, right? So pedestrianism wouldn't be gambling if everyone that was speedwalking together said, hey, I bet you I'm a faster speedwalker than you, because then it's just a game of skill, right? Because you actually control your performance. So when sports betting became illegal, and what's interesting now is that you know, we've had different, getting ahead of ourselves, but we've had, we've had different um, people get in trouble for betting on their own team. You know, that's not necessarily right. when you control it. Obviously, you're betting against your team. That's fraud. But if you're betting on yourself and the outcome, you know, technically you control the outcome to an extent. And there's a, a skill element there. And obviously, we've 
gone past that in well, certain states. Of course, states. the most famous one is Pete Rose. Pete Rose. Yeah, we can yeah. talk about that. We'll yeah. do a whole episode on that. But, but with pedestrianism, it's interesting because it really does depend on who's placing the bet. If you have control over it, like that's the whole issue behind fantasy sports and why they're legal is that we're claiming that they're games of skill and you have control over your and roster. that gets back to the example we made in our last episode, which is a spelling bee is not gambling. Correct. Right? Well, and, and much skill. of what I saw was when they were smaller, privately held at racetracks, the racetrack was actually putting up the purse. Mm. When they were more large public events, it was Madison Square Garden or, or whatever venue that was putting up the purse. And it's interesting because it was at a time when a lot of gambling and wagering was outlawed. Yeah, so let's talk about that. In the early 1900s, I don't think that there were necessarily any laws saying that gambling was legal. There weren't any that saying that it was illegal, right? Everyone was just doing it. You know, you had some considerations like the like the no entertainment on Sundays. However, in the early 1900s, as America's societal values changed, the state started outlawing these things, right? And I think it came to a head with the Black Sox scandal in 1919. Now, we want to do an entire episode on that, so we'll cover that in detail. But after the Black Sox scandal, pretty much every state had put it out its own ban on gambling. And the penalties weren't enforced against the participants or the gamblers. They're enforced against the bookies or the organizations who were facilitating these trades. So we get to this period of the early 1900s where gambling was outlawed. But I think that was at the state level, right? So then in 1931, Nevada says we're going to legalize casinos. And they had state legislation which legalized casinos. And at that point in time, there was nothing federally which would prevent them from doing that. So they legalized casinos. And then in 1949, Nevada actually legalized sports betting. They thought this would be a great way to bring in even more tourism into the state. So 1949, they legalized sports betting. And in 1951, the federal government comes out and says, okay, we're not going to talk about the legality of gambling, but through the Revenue Act of 1951, we're going to go ahead and place a tax on wagers. And they define wagers only as sports betting, right? Only as sports betting, a tax of 10%. So every wager you make is going to be taxed at 10%. And then you expect the sports betting operator to try and make some money, effectively wiped out all sports betting in Nevada. It's just, it's just too expensive to do it. Well, and this is a theme that I've seen throughout every kind of ebb and flow in gambling and, and sports sports gambling is it's generally based in some sort of economic climate of the nation. You know, they're putting laws down to prevent it if the economy is bad and people are not doing well, then they are making it okay if they need to raise money or if they can raise money or see an opportunity to raise money. I, mean, I think Raz going to have a better answer for this because he understands uh, the history of the Constitution better, but isn't this a, a way that the U.S. generally enforces public policy is, you know, we're not going to rule on the morality of things, but we're just going to place a tax on it. You can mm -hmm. smoke all the cigarettes you want to smoke. We're just going to place a tax on it. We're gonna, you can drink beer. You can uh, you can gamble. We're just going to place a tax, put a tax on it. Yeah, but there's the, there's the ebb and flow, right? The 18th Amendment outlawed alcohol in our country, you know, prohibition for over a decade and had crazy ramifications. And then now we've we've legalized it again, but we've taxed it and we've regulated it. What's interesting, I think, through all this research is the ebb and flow that Blake brought up. And it, and it does go to this economics. And and to me, that means when I take a bigger view of it, obviously the economics around, oh, we're not doing as well. Let's legalize it. But why in those times, what, what precipitated it being illegal? Because I think if you go back to the early 1900s, it wasn't like we were flush with cash and it was just everything was great for everyone in the country either. 
but I guess you're doing maybe well enough where the morality of it, and I think the morality of it, because you know when we talked about it last time, I did some research on the religious ties to gambling, and like a lot of religions don't even really talk about it, and you can kind of find anti-religious sentiment around it in, in certain ways, but it's not like talked about directly in in a lot of old religious texts that like this is something that's illegal or, or something that's banned. But I do think that what really comes down to it is who's making the money off of it. And so if you can find a real good purpose for it, to Blake's point, if the tax revenue is going to help society, then people can get behind it and like, oh yeah, this this is good. And obviously when you have enough money or, or something changes or if it's the, the mob that's making me off it, then we have a lot of problems with it, right? So it's it's interesting. It's almost like, is the act itself somehow immoral? Maybe, I don't know, but I do think like who's making money off it has had a lot of ramifications. Yeah, and does it does it attract a certain set of the you know business population? Yep. So we haven't talked a lot about the mob because I think most people would associate mobs with casinos, but it's impossible to not associate casinos with sports betting, right? So to an extent, the mob probably was involved in some of the sports betting because they were providing bookies, they were providing a forum for the bookies, and we haven't really dive into that quite yet, and I think we will down the road. So we have this period of kind of uncertainty where the states all ban it. Then Nevada says we're going to specifically allow it. And the federal government, at least in the Revenue Act of 1951, says, okay, fine, we're not going to comment on that, but we are going to tax it at 10%. Now, if you looked at the Revenue Act, and there's been a history of them, they taxed quite a few things at that point in time. So I don't know that they're specifically targeting gambling or sports betting, but I don't think that anyone necessarily was fighting for sports betting and say, hey, we need lower taxes on sports betting. And that's an interesting mob tie-in for this is that when you were talking about how most states started to place these bans, and it, it was pretty much nationwide in the early 1900s, organized crime was known for starting up illegitimate gambling rings, and they did that. And in the 1950s, that's when, which I know we're going to transition right into this, but that's when the Wire Act first started to get talked about, and the fed- that was the federal government's answer to these racketeering rings using the expanding telephone wires to place bets and yeah there's actually there's the wire rico and then the travel act right which are all kind of were the federal government's responses ultimately to gambling and and sports betting and we're going to get into that next time so what i want to do is i want to wrap this one up um, so we go up to the wire act we're going to do an episode here soon just covering the black Sox scandal because i really want to talk about all the inputs and influences you know the thing about the black Sox scandal is it's not as if that was a problem because they were illegally gambling like people were going to gamble you know whether gambling was legal or not people were going to try to influence the outcome of huge events and i think that's probably happened forever and you've got the tim donaghy thing mm-hmm. which we'll cover at some point in time so the interesting thing about the black Sox scandal is people aren't outraged because the, it was illegal to gamble at that point in time or you know in those states uh, it was the Reds versus the uh, Chicago White Sox. But people are outraged because people were throwing the, the – or they think that they were throwing the mm-hmm. game. And obviously, I, that would be something to be outraged at. But I think it's just interesting that you just completely bypass the fact that the people who were gambling, you know, those guys got thrown out of baseball. And I don't know what the punishment was for the people who orchestrated yeah. the event because everyone was ended up being acquitted, yeah. right? And, and we'll, talk, we'll dive into that. Next and, week, and and unfortunately, because of that, we have Roger Goodell today. Yeah, because commis- pretty much commis- commissioners were started, right. and now look what's That's happened. Right, right? The the, first baseball commissioner. Yeah, the, and then Goodell's favorite uh, line is "integrity of the game," which yeah. is something that uh, Commissioner Landis used to say yep. all the time. 
All right. Well, really appreciate you checking in and listening into this episode of Vegan Juice. Please check back. We should have another one up next week. Take care.